Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about bat and ball cheating. So, in Major League Baseball, you've had a huge scandal that's just come out in the last two or three weeks with electronic sign stealing. Now, for the listeners who aren't huge baseball fans, effectively, when you have a baseball game, you have the catcher and the pitcher. So the pitcher will throw, you will pitch a, let's say, 96 mile an hour fastball. The catcher will then, you know, if the batsman misses it, the catcher will catch it, throw it back. You know, a bit like the sort of relationship between a wicketkeeper and the bowler. In baseball, the catcher is the one who decides what the next pitch is. So whether it's a fastball, a curveball, a slider, you know, change up, so on and so forth. And it's an agreement between the pitcher and the catcher. So they have signs. So the catcher, let's say, lays down one finger for a fastball, two fingers for a curveball. And you know, they decide on it, pitch then goes ahead. So historically, there's always been the opportunity for the, op- the opposition to the oppo to steal the signs, to find out what the next pitch is going to be, whether it's going to be a curveball, whether it's going to be a fastball, so that your guy who's batting knows what to expect. As with any cheating scandal, there is grey areas and there's black label cheating. Now, traditionally, the best way of stealing signs would be if you have a runner at second base who can directly see where see where the catcher is laying down the signs is to somehow get a, a you know verb you know either a verbal or a non-verbal cue to the batters to let them know what is coming next that's basically gray area theoretically you shouldn't do it but if the catcher is silly enough to you know lay down an obvious sign yes you know that's acceptable that's just you know smarts by the base runner, smarts by the hitter, and you know, a lack of due care and attention by the defensive team, by the pitcher and the catcher. Now, historically, there's always been ever more sophisticated methods. One of the most sophisticated was the um, Giants in the 1950s. So, what they had was a ballpark where the clubhouse, where the sort of changing rooms, were in centre field. As opposed to, you know, behind home plate, you know, usually in the bounds of the stadium where they usually were for most other major league parks. <clears throat> but the polo grounds was an older ground, just, it was more like a horseshoe shape than a diamond, which is what usual baseball stadiums look like. So what they eventually just realised was, is that the people in the home clubhouse had a perfect view of centre field, perfect view of home plate and with binoculars could see what the catcher was laying down. So what they did was they managed to run an electrical cable from the clubhouse underneath the um, pitch to the third base coach, and effectively the third base coach would get a minor electrical shot, one for fastball, two for like a curveball, and would then let the batter know. The, the ultimate irony was is that the electrician that did it had no real idea that what he was doing was effectively aiding them to cheat, and that the electrician was actually a Brooklyn Dodgers fan. So it's the equivalency of, let's say, Arsenal you know, finding a way to cheat to beat Spurs at home, and the electrician being a Spurs fan and not realising what was going on. 
And in the 50s, the Giants were massively behind the Brooklyn Dodgers in the race for the pennant. And I think it's something like 12, 13, 14 games ahead. And the Giants, with this sign-stealing at home, were virtually undefeatable. And they came back, and eventually the Dodgers tie on the last game of the season and a three-game playoff to uh, for the National League pennant for an opportunity to play the Yankees in the World Series. Comes down to the third game, winner takes all, Dodgers have a lead, and the Giants come back, and eventually Bobby Thompson hits a, a pennant-changing three-run walk-off home run. The Gus Hodges, the play-by-play guy, goes absolutely mental. He just screamed, the Giants win the pennant, the Giants win the pennant, sort of 10, 12, 11 times over. Now, for years, Ralph Branker, the losing pitcher, had claimed that the you know, Giants had stolen the signs and that he knew, and that the batter, Bobby Thompson, knew that it was going to be a fastball. For years, people very much treated it as, you know, as bitterness, as Branker and the Dodgers being sore losers. And it's only really in the last sort of five to ten years that it's actually come out that the Giants had cheated on an almost industrial level, and had they not cheated, they almost certainly wouldn't have tied the Dodgers. It certainly wouldn't have gone to a three-game playoff for the National League pennant. But I suppose the argument is, is that it had been so long before the cheating was uncovered and that the, the romanticness of the Brooklyn Dodgers and the New York Giants, teams that now no longer exist in New York. They've moved to LA and San Francisco and that the walk-off home, the, the shot heard around the world was so famous that the fact that it was based on cheating is really, it's more added just an element of historical curio rather than being an, an infamous scandal as such. So moving on to the, the, the present day, what you have with this sign-stealing scandal is that when Major League Baseball implemented replay review, in other words, it was just a way of stopping the egregious mistakes that umpires occasionally made when they signal the runner out at first base when he was clearly safe by two or three feet. And the primary issue, like the issues that the Premier League are having with VAR, is that you just want to limit the downtime. Fans, after about 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe 90 seconds, get irritated when nothing's happening. It's, you know, dead time. The players are standing around the umpires. Nothing is happening. So to really try and mitigate that, what the Major League Baseball decided was to create a replay room where each team would effectively have a bunch of monitors and an employee watching the game who would basically, if there was a, you know, player that needed to be reviewed he could then signal it as quickly as humanly possible to the manager to initiate the challenge with the umpires and it goes up to the replay room in New York City where they make the decision. The problem is is that with the huge amount of cameras that are you know in every single major league baseball stadium which allows us to see all the wonderful camera angles is that that meant that the players were effectively 10 feet away from monitors that could show you what the catcher was laying down. Those the signs. Now, the idea was is that Major League Baseball said, on scouts' honour, you aren't to go into that room and steal the signs and find a way to 
you know, let the you know, batter know what's coming next. Naturally, decent number of teams you know, obviously started to cheat. There was no one watching these rooms, and there was, you know, unless you made an, an idiot mistake, no one was going to find out as such. And eventually, the Astros were probably one of the teams that were firstly most successful at the time, and ones that actually implemented it to the, the largest degree. So their process was is that they'd have a monitor in effectively on just outside of the dugout and the steps in the bowels of the stadium, a few feet away from the dugout where all the players were based, and someone would find out what the sign was, let the person know in the on the dugout steps, and they would get a baseball bat and bang a trash can to let them know the hitter to know what was to expect. It's that amazing combination of high definition television and cheating that you would do in the park. <laughs> you know, that kind of overtly unsophisticated someone make a loud bang to let them know it's a fastball. And eventually teams started getting particularly paranoid about it. In other words, everyone was stealing everyone's signs, no one knew who, and especially in the playoffs when every single pitch, every single inning has some element of vitalness to it. Is that teams were using multiple signs it, and eventually baseball effectively drew a line in the sand and said, if you cheat after this and we find out about it, you can lose draft picks, we will punish your general manager, you will punish your field manager. Uh, Major League Baseball have now investigated the Astros and they're in the process of investigating the Boston Red Sox. So these are two out of the last three World Series champions. And the manager of the Houston Astros has been uh, banned from baseball for a year, so was the general manager, both of whom have subsequently been sacked by the Astros. The Boston Red Sox manager, Alex Cora, who was the assistant manager in baseball parlance, the bench coach for the Astros in 2017 when they won the World Series, then became the Red Sox manager, and they're currently being investigated for cheating. That Effectively, the argument goes is that, that Cora had instituted it with the players at Houston, brought it to Boston, implemented a similar kind of structure. He's been sacked, and the player, Carlos Beltran, who was almost certainly going to get into the Hall of Fame, who had just been appointed manager of the New York Mets. His last season as a player was in Houston in 2017, and he was considered one of the sort of ringleaders among the players, and as a result, he's now been let go by the New York Mets. So you've had 10% of all baseball managers have now left within the last week as a result of this investigations, and it's a real... Huge thing because you know Beltran was well respected. So was Alex Cora. So was AJ Hinch. The the Houston Astros front office was considered a industry leader in terms of using analytics and using statistics to improve pitches, and they had turned the Astros around from having you know been historically not particularly the most successful team. They'd never they'd only got to the World Series once. They never won the World Series. And they'd had a complete teardown when um, the general manager, who's now been fired, you know, they had three seasons where they lost over 100 games and they were terrible. But they picked up enough young players, enough draft picks, that eventually, they, from having lost 100 games plus three years in a row, 
won 300, yeah, won 100 games a year, won the World Series, got to another World Series, got to yeah, American League, effectively the semi-finals. Now, I think it's instructive now to really go into sort of cricket cheating, which is, you know, for me, cricket and baseball are cousin sports. So, I think there's this probably the similar kind of scandals that you've had in, in cricket would be um, the dirt in the pocket scandal with Mike Atherton, the sandpaper gate with the Australians, you know, question marks about, you know, Pakistan tampering with the cricket ball in the early 90s with regards to reverse swing and, you know, spot fixing and match fixing with Hansi Kronje with South Africa, spot fixing with Pakistan at the Lord's Test a few years ago. I think it's best to start with really what was the what's the impact that cheating has and the different types of cheating on the sporting public. I suppose you have there's always the element of shock and you have the loss of respect for the individuals involved. Now with let's take dirt in the pocket. So Mike Atherton was a England test and one day captain and he was quite a young captain when he originally took on the job and I think it's important to give the, the context is that in the mid mid 90s you had a Australian cricket team that was went on to dominate the next I suppose 10 to 12 to 13 years and you just having the back end of the West Indies team that have really dominated cricket from I suppose the late 70s all the way through to the early 90s they wouldn't they were in the decline phase but they were still a very good cricket team especially at home you had South Africa who'd been readmitted to international sports and to cricket in the early 90s and they were you know riding the high of that and had a very good team you had you know Sri Lanka in, in the one day format of the game you had India and Pakistan that had huge amounts of talent. It was an era where there was lots of very good cricket teams. You know, you had one team that was about to become, you know, all-conquering Australian team. You had an, a West Indies team that were just at the back end of a period of dominance. And England were really in the middle. They had some good players. They even had a couple of great players. But collectively, they were not able to match the Australians, the West Indians... And it was a chastising decade. It was a difficult decade to be an England fan. Just when you thought they were about to turn around the corner, they would always lose. They would lose in you know, sh embarrassing manners, in shocking manners. They weren't the worst team in the world, but it felt like it at times. And really, you know, the English cricket board, English cricket as a whole, needed to be reformed. And it was only really up until the back end of the 1990s when you had the disaster of you know, not making the latter stages of a home World Cup in the one-day team and being fight, finishing bottom of the test rankings. So effectively, in the late 90s, England become the worst team in the world. And from then on, you know, it led on to a period of great success once the reforms had been made. So for Atherton, he was under a huge amount of pressure. The England cricket captain at that time was considered basically one of the three most stressful jobs in England and Britain. 
between the Prime Minister and England football manager. So there was a huge amount of pressure put onto him because not only do you have to lead from the front and play fantastically well, effectively you're almost the manager. You're the tactician out there on the field. And there was very little support. He was up against these you know, brilliant teams, you know, and you were spending huge amounts of time, you know, touring. So that means going months at a time away from home in you know hostile conditions. So you're talking about the heat and the bounce of the pitches in the West Indies. You have the and the heat and the pitches and the desire for the Australians to beat the Poms, to beat the English. And so, what had happened was is that he had put some dirt in his pocket and was effectively surreptitiously putting the ball into the pocket to try and rough up the ball so that it would start to do more. So I suppose the difference in between baseball where you have, you know, effectively the ball gets replaced once every two or three swings really depending on whether it's been hit foul or whether it's gone out of play whereby in cricket you have in test matches you have one ball you have that for about 80 overs and effectively it will obviously degrade and so how you utilize that how you get the ball to do things so in other words you keep one side shiny one side rough so with the aerodynamics it affects swing so the idea with swing is is that you want it moving just at the last second away from the batsman. It's more likely to get an edge to get out and so on and so forth. So Atherton was caught on television putting the ball into the po- you know, pocket, the element, and seeing him earlier on having put dirt in there. The thing is, in the wider scheme of things, England weren't in a great position in the match, weren't a particularly brilliant team. It was more the embarrassment because for cricketing nations the have an idealized view of the country in your cricket team and that's personified by the cricket captain so for your captain to be the one that's cheating in such a in such a public way was so utterly embarrassing it was against the idea of fair play and cricket is you know that's the statement is it it's not cricket and he was just absolutely dragged over the coals by the sporting press, by the sporting public. He had to you know, publicly apologise. He was fined. and But eventually, I think people understood that it was a minor transgression done under a period of stress that didn't fundamentally alter the impact of the result. And it was more along the lines of just being more of a social faux pas you know, not only being caught, but doing it in the first place. Whereby, if you compare it with Sandpaper Gate and the Australian cricket team, which was far more far-reaching in terms of its impact, both on the team itself, on the sport itself, and also on the the public back home. And it really led to a period of national introspection, which didn't happen with Mike Atherton and Dirt in the Pocket. With Sandpaper Gate, it was really the perfect storm that had been brewing for a while within Australian cricket. Now, historically, Australian cricket has had periods where it's been massively successful. It's at times in the 60s, at times in the 70s. And there's an idealised view of what an Australian cricket team should do. It needs to be tough. It needs to be in your face. It needs to get it, you know, it really, for it to be successful, needs to have an element of the mongrel within. 
and that would include sledging. So that's, you know, effectively to an outside of what sledging is, is effectively just, you know, having a word. So in other words, so when the, the, you have a new batsman at, you know, at bat, it's simply the nearest fielders just giving him abuse. It, some of it might be humorous, some of it might be close to the line, but it's simply just to get in the, the opposition's face and to constantly let them know that you're there, to put them under the most pressure. And so, especially for English teams going out to Australia, because of the, you know, the colonial history behind it, Australia wants to beat England more than anybody else. And because when they're at home, Australian pitches have always traditionally been, you know, have benefited fast bowlers. So that's it. You, it when, you imagine Austra- when you close your eyes and imagine Australian fast bowlers, you go back to the 1970s. You have Lily and Tomo, and they're big. They have big moustaches. You know, they're you know, tall, intimidating. They run at you fast all day long and bowl the ball at 90, 90 miles an hour at your head. And this was at a period of time when people weren't wearing helmets. So you were going out there wearing a cloth cap, and effect baseball cap, and effectively a you know a shirt, a linen shirt. And that was it. That was your protection. If you wanted, you tried to you know basically you know put some kind of you know box you know to protect your nether regions. But this was you know, these were very haphazard. They were not particularly well designed. And they gave you about as minimal protection. So in other words, you were always at chance of getting a broken arm, a damaged shoulder. You, know, you, you were effectively putting your life in your own hands to go out there. And because the pitches weren't as well maintained as they were, as they are now, you had cracks. So in other words, it could hit off of a crack in the middle of the pitch and it could be go anywhere. And so it created a, a legend. That's, you know, really... It really seeped into the Australian consciousness. So in other words, when they had periods where they weren't successful, there was always this clarion call to go back to the back to basics. That meant that Australians played hard cricket. But it, there was an element of civility to it, but it was very much the you know, like that went with white line fever. So that essentially when you went onto the pitch and onto the field you could be as abusive as humanly possible. You could put the Austro- the opposition under as much you know, psychological pressure. You would target the captain. That's what the Australian team will always do. Target the captain, go for the head, and the rest will then fall into line. But the idea was is that at the end of play, so you'd sit there and you'd maybe give the batsman an hour's worth of absolutely horrendous abuse, but then at the end of the game, you'd go up to that person and have three or four beers with them and be tremendously... It friendly towards them and some people found that really difficult to sort of grasp it's like well how can you be nice to me now when you've been you know effectively pushing the line for the you know five days of the test match but for the Australian consciousness was well that's how we do it we have to you know win at all costs on the field off the field you know we're completely you know friendly and and what this led to was is that the Australian public had an expectation that the Australian cricket team should be dominant at all times. And the Australian cricket board, in the way how they would market it, needed that. So in other words, there was so much pressure from up top that was then really filtered down to the coaching staff, the manager, 
and the players that they had to win. And so what where Australian cricket started to struggle, and this is mirrored in really the rest of cricket as well, is that it became increasingly harder to win away from home. So Australia were generally speaking pretty dominant at home, but the second that they would leave Australia, their techniques, and I think, again, for people who aren't huge cricket fans, is that what you would have is is that conditions in England, Pakistan, Australia, New Zealand, India, South Africa, are all massively different. Different heat, different types of... And the impact that it has on the surfaces that you're playing on. So in other words, an English cricket player usually plays on quite green wickets because there's lots of moisture. So there's lots of late movement. Whereby Australians, you can really trust the bounce tends to be truer. And it's far more you're dealing with pace, whereby in India, the surfaces are a lot slower. There's far more spin involved. And so there's different challenges. And the Australian teams were almost too Australian. So as a result, they would get absolutely annihilated in Asia. You know, they were struggling. They had kept on losing the Ashes in England. And really, as a result... When faced with this situation, the Australians and cricket team of that of the last few years decided to almost double down. So they were going to tour South Africa, which is probably, you know, along with New Zealand, probably the closest replication of Australian conditions. Generally, you know, there's a pace in the wickets, and that was where they felt that they could definitely get a result, where they could win away from home and to assuage the critics in the media and the cricketing public that Australia were getting back to the dominance they'd had in the 90s and early 2000s. You know, they had just beaten England at home in the Ashes for nil, and the South Africa series was going to be where they were going to take the next step. And that pressure had led to the, really effectively, the start of the cheating. In other words, Australia had lost in England. And not only did they need to beat England in Australia, they wanted to annihilate them. So it's a five-game series, and they wanted to win 5 nothing. Eventually, they ended up 4-0, and they'd given the England players a huge amount of sledging, aggressive behaviour. They had gone out of their way to you know, try and embarrass the England team. And what they had done is that with cricket balls is that you have effectively two different main suppliers so for England and a couple of other countries it's a company called Dukes now the Dukes ball tends to stay harder for longer which means that you get effectively more advantage to the bowler and the seam is slightly bigger so effectively it's a ball that does more for longer whereby uh, South Africa and Australia and New Zealand use a company called Kookaburra. Now, that ball goes softer, quicker, the seam is less pronounced, and generally tends to do a lot less. Effectively, I suppose the principle with the Kookaburra ball is, is that that is perfectly suited to the conditions in New Zealand, Australia, and South Africa, where the Duke's ball tends to be you know, much more much more suited to you know, stereotypically English conditions. 
So we had a situation where Australia had the advantage over having better players than England, had the advantage of the home advantage and conditions, but their desire to win 5 nothing to boost, I suppose, the media and the public interest at home, what they started to do was to tamper with the ball. So that effectively, once the ball had become soft, it becomes less responsive and it's harder to take wickets and get outs. So what they had started to do was effectively put some sandpaper on you know, one of their fingers and to effectively jimmy up the ball so that it would be more likely to reverse swing. So effectively reverse swing is when the ball tails into the batsman or can potentially tail out as in traditional you know, traditional outswing. And this is you know, very difficult, specifically at pace, because the, the batsman doesn't know which way the ball is going, whether it's going to go straight on, whether it's going to tail away or tail in. So naturally it creates you know, wickets, it you know, stems scoring. And so whenever England were coming close to you know, getting a foothold in the game, they'd suddenly you know, lose three or four wickets very quickly, the ball would do something, and yet the English bowlers weren't with effectively the same ball, weren't able to get anywhere near that level of control. Now, one of the elements with cheating is, is that it's in plain sight, but it's just that moment of obscurity. So in other words, you assume that it's somehow skill, that the Australian bowlers being faster, younger, better suited to conditions, were just able to do something magic with the ball that the English bowlers who were used to you know, using a different equipment weren't able to replicate. Whereby actually now that we look back on it, oh, the reason was is that they had an unfair advantage. Now, as I said earlier about the Australian mentality in terms of, you know, sort of post-match, it appears that what had happened was a couple of the Australian players had really told the English players after the series what they had been doing, or at least hinting at it. Now the point was is that England had just been beaten 4-0 in a five-test series and had been you know, pretty much absolutely battered. Now the idea of coming out, much like Ralph Branker, and saying, well actually the Aussies had an unfair advantage, would have appeared churlish, I think people would have ignored it. But effectively, there was enough of an undercurrent that something was going up. So that when the Australians went out to South Africa, the South African TV company that were broadcasting had a cameraman focused on the ball at all times just to see catch what would happen. And naturally, by the third test match, it had been a very tight series, and but South Africa were on top. And the Australians were getting more and more frustrated. There was a famous incident between David Warner and the South African Quinton de Kock. And it's no one comes out of that story with particularly their reputations enhanced, let's say. But well effectively the Australians were, you know, being quite bolshy and Quinton de Kock made a comment about David Warner's wife, who'd had a previous relationship with the um, New Zealand All Black rugby player Sonny Bill Williams. And there'd have basically nearly been a fight at the in a break in play for lunch, and the Australians were getting to the point of being almost feral in their aggression, in their desire and their need to get victory, and that they were getting more and more frustrated. And as this series went on, it was a very 
it was cricket almost at its, not quite its peak, but it was a fascinating series to watch. And every time it looked like South Africa were just about to get, you know, go out of sight and to carry on to victory, they kept on losing, you know, three or four wickets in the middle of their innings, you know, and it always was reverse swing. And at the time, there was always the assumption that, and the South Africans cricket in the last sort of generation always had this reputation for blowing it at the semi-finals or just as they're about to have some success you know they will have a collapse and so people at the time were just assuming well okay South Africa should go on and win the series as long as they can you know stop losing all of these wickets and you know just finish the Australians off but actually what it was is that they were doctoring the ball and that was causing these you know middle order collapses now finally there's, you know, the South African broadcasters captured the ball tampering and it led to a, a huge scandal. The, the person that was actually tampering with the ball was Cameron Bancroft, who had just only really broken into the team. And eventually there was an, a huge investigation. And as with a lot of things in, in cheating, there was always an element of coercion there's always a failure of someone in authority to stop it they might know about it but they just don't have the nerve to go through with stopping it so what it appears from you know the reports and all the investigations is that david warner who was the vice captain had decided that yeah, they weren't doing well in this test and that they were going to doctor the ball. So what he does is he goes to his young player, Cameron Bancroft, who's only just broken into the team, who was also his opening batsman. So they're basically when you open in the batting, it's you're always opening with the same person. You, you know, because you're running you know, between the wickets, you have to have some kind of relationship. And the best partnerships have always gone on for three or four years, five, six, seven, eight, and so on. So David Warner is the senior in terms of being vice-captain, in terms of being his fellow opening batsman, goes up to him and says, here's the sandpaper, you need to then get the ball and you know sandpaper the ball so that it starts to reverse swing. So Bancroft, who is literally, if he says no, isn't saying no to his vice-captain, he's saying no to his... You, know, it's, you can understand the sort of pressure that he was under to try and fit in and to get to the point where he could then establish himself in the Australian cricket team. Now, Stephen Smith, who was the captain, knows about it, but didn't go to the extent of stopping it. Effectively, he tacitly endorsed it. And as a result, there was a huge amount of national introspection. Because really, this has been, you know, Australia has said that they were, would adhere to the rules, but they would headbutt the line. So they would go just as much as they humanly possibly could to get the result. And if that involves sledging and so on and so forth. And for a lot of time, this overtly aggressive manner had become increasingly unpopular with all the other cricketing playing nations. So the Indians, the Pakistanis, the English, the South Africans had really had enough of it. And... You know, lost, uh, Warner and Smith lost the captaincy. They'd lost their a lot of their endorsements. They were all were banned for an extended period of time from you know all forms of cricket. 
the coach who hadn't known anything about the ball tampering had you know had to resign and really there was just a long period where australia you know cricketing public its media and it's you know the cricket board who put the huge amount of pressure on win at all costs on the coaches all really had to look into within themselves and eventually they hired a new captain in Tim Payne who hadn't really been you know, a major part of the squad for a few years who then said look we're going to play differently we're going to go to play a, a brand of cricket that isn't as you know, aggressive you know as testosterone filled and was far more actually focusing on the fundamentals of the game rather than on overt machismo what this really leads to is at the heart of all cheating scandals. If when we go to the movies, we willingly suspend our disbelief to be frightened, to get enjoyment, to be shocked. Sports is appeal in that it's challenging that suspension of disbelief. You know, for example, I never thought that we would ever make it this far. I never thought he or she could make that shot. In other words, we're suspending our disbelief because the sportsmen and women are challenging that. You know, different tactics, different, you know, f- you know the physical gifts. You know, someone smashing a 500-foot home run. You know, someone making a three-point shot from, you know, centre court. But the foundation of this challenging of suspension of disbelief is based on a notion and appearance of a fair playing field married to an applicable set of rules so in other words we can only you know can only really truly enjoy challenging of the suspension of disbelief if we believe that everyone is playing by the same rules playing with the same equipment and that there's someone there monitoring it, and that there is a rule book that allows for you know the challenge to be in a fair one. So really, what Sam Papergate questioned was the skill of these Australian bowlers, and it enraged and angered them because they hadn't been involved, they hadn't wanted the ball to have been tampered with. You know, one of the best you know previous practitioners of reverse wing had been the Pakistani fast bowlers in the early 90s there was a scandal in the when playing a test match against uh, England and English batsmen couldn't deal with um, the reverse wing of the Pakistani bowlers they just weren't able to pick up they weren't able it wasn't something they faced in their domestic cricket <laughs> and what happened was is that the ball had been tampered with and the umpire decided that you know he the ball had to be replaced because it had been damaged and effectively had you know blamed the Pakistanis for doing so and that they'd use something like bottle caps to basically allow the ball to start to reverse swing and there was a huge kind of scandal and always with international cricket there's always that hint of you know, diplomacy involved in that, you know, especially if it's a test match happening in England, you know, who, in terms of being the creators and exporters of the sport, and then obviously the, you know, colonial aspect in, you know, 
with the Commonwealth nations being the countries that picked up and, and really loved the sport more than you know more than the rest of the outside world. So the real question that this asks is, well, why do cricket fans love reverse swing? I mean, basically, it's overt appearance. So in other words, it doesn't happen during every single game. And yet, really, when it appears, it's historically been associated with, you know, grey rule, you know, ball manipulation and outright cheating. But what it is, is that, firstly, it's a wonderful spectacle. It's... Balls moving at 80, 90 miles an hour with just late-breaking movement. It's exciting. And it happens during down periods, quiet periods in the game. It's match-altering in short periods of time. It's thrilling. And it's also most lethal when it's done by the most skillful, talented bowlers. So invariably, it it impacts the most important matches and series. You know... Effectively, the dirty secret of, of cheating is that it, it occurs often when there are issues within the game structure. So, for example, in cricket with the kookaburra ball, because it goes soft very easily, because it doesn't do much for sort of, let's say, 60% of its lifespan, and because test match cricket in being you know, five days, being an extended period of, of game, compared to, you know, any other, you know, major frontline team sport. I mean, in 2005, you had the Ashes series where England hadn't won, beaten the Australians since the 1980s. And Australia were just on the, the sort of edges of, you know, the decline period of this wonderful sort of dynastic, you know, set of teams. And England were able to u- utilise reverse swing in a way the Australian bowlers weren't able to. And yet, really, it's sort of slowly but surely coming out that England were using mints and saliva, you know, with sugar on it as a way of... So, in other words, it wasn't, you know, sandpaper gate. It was far more grey area. But there was an element that that was probably really the only way that England would get just that minor, you know, intangible benefit that was going to put them over the edge. It was a, such a tight series. It was 2-1. It went down to the fifth day of the fifth test at the Oval. And just made for some compelling cricket. And effectively, the Pakistani fans, you know, with, you know, accepted an element of chicanery because, you know, it led to them winning the 1992 World Cup in... Australia, the first time you know, Pakistan had ever won a major international tournament. English fans were quite happy to accept you know, the you know, mint-sucking if that meant they'd beaten the Australians for the first time since you know, 2005. <laughs> in 2005, the first time in you know, effectively a generation. I would imagine, really, a baseball fan watching, listening to this podcast and hearing about these cricket scandals would feel a certain amount of familiarity with some of the with some of the particulars as it applies to the you know sp- sign stealing of the Astros and the Red Sox in the sense that you know, you know the element of the you know in the case of the Astros the manager AJ Hinch 
being against the the policy of stealing the signs using the monitors in the clubhouse, but the assistant being the one who was the instigator, and despite knowing not doing anything to stop him, and of the you know front office of the next level of management being more interested in winning and not really caring about how the process or how people were you know outside of the you know bubble of the organization were viewing them and i think what it leads to is it's more for me the interest that i have in the weakness of hinch's position as to how it's led him to losing his job despite him not actually you know instigating or endorsing the cheating and I think it's what it comes down to is is that he didn't have the I think the political strength and power within the organization to do anything about it to stop it so Hinch is AJ Hinch is a fascinating individual he had a major league baseball career not a particularly famous or particularly long one but just a solid career and went into the front office and you know in terms of being a scouting director and he had never you know done any coaching or any management at any level in the minor leagues or in college or in the professional game before he was hired as the manager of the Arizona Diamondbacks and at the time it was a very controversial you know managerial hire because the argument is there was you know, obviously you only have 30 major league you know manager roles and so there's always far more candidates than there are positions and yet here the Diamondbacks were picking someone with no experience whatsoever over all of these far more experienced far more successful candidates and for about he was there just under two years and his record was relatively poor theoretically he was probably five ten years ahead of his time in that you know he Yes, he didn't have you know, previous manager experience, but he understood the you know, technology that was starting to infiltrate the game, advanced statistics, you know, different managerial strategies that weren't tactical, weren't about, you know, well, how long do you leave this pitcher in? Do you make a double switch here? Do you put a pinch hitter in there? But actually more to do with the holistic side. In other words, you know, how you these players were being trained, what their, you know, mental skills were, so on and so forth. But by the time he'd then been rehired, you know, and got a job with as manager of the Houston Astros, the front office revolution had got there first and had done all of the, the bits and pieces and skills that he, you know, that hadn't been appreciated, you know, three, four, five years earlier in Arizona were really now commonplace. So effectively the credit went to the front office, the general manager, for hiring him from Scrap Heap, from Stasis, where, you know, he wasn't likely to get another, you know, major league managerial job based on his overt lack of experience and his previous, you know, lack of success in Arizona. In the previous couple of generations, the manager was venerated as, you know, this tactical leader or this spark plug, you know, a you know, Sparky Anderson. Billy Martin, Earl Weaver, as these, you know, really on-field managerial generals. You know, 
leading from the front, whereby now you're far more likely the credit is given to the general manager who has you know far more control. You know, the role of manager has now been marginalised. It's now far more subordinate to the front office. And because AJ Hinch had been had been hired basically halfway through the Astros rebuild. So he wasn't there at the beginning when they were losing a hundred games. He effectively reaped the harvest that the previous manager, Bo Porter, had sowed. So effectively, Hinch had no stake or role or, I suppose, political capital that had come out from having been there in the down years. If you compare it to, let's say, Buck Showalter, who had, was given a huge stake in the Orioles' rebirth and rebuild as a viable postseason team. Because he'd been there when they hadn't you know, been a major factor since the you know, late 90s. You know, they were a doormat. They had, you know, the years where the Tampa Bay, you know, Toronto, Boston, New York had had all had success. And so his role in you know, working with the front office, but it, he got a far larger percentage of the credit than A.J. Hinch ever did. So in effect, Hinch's downfall was a failure of narrative. As the report into the cheating showed, the front office didn't have a huge amount of day-to-day dealings. There wasn't much communication there. So that there was a lack of trust. While Hinch had won the 2017 World Series as manager, generally being considered to have done an excellent job in managing that team, he didn't seem to have, even though he'd been given a long contract, a particularly strong amount of tenure. In other words, as soon as the you know Astros lost to the Red Sox, as soon as they had you know, been defeated, the chances of him being replaced as manager became exponentially larger, and especially with the hiring of, let's say, Alex Cora, who'd been hit, who was the bench coach when they had won the World Series. He then went to Boston, won a World Series. There was always the sense that, effectively, he was the easy you know, fall guy. He was fungible. And it was an easy media narrative that feeds on fans' frustration. Oh, it was the manager that screwed up in the playoffs. If only we had a better field manager, then we would have won because the differences between winning and losing in the playoffs often feels like the manager. And it's the front office who are the ones who have the security of tenure as such. And I suppose in some ways the tragedy of Hinch was that in his success, he had McDonaldized himself. Now, in fact, all prospective managers now look and sound like him. And as a result, it strengthens the activist front office in the sense that could replace him virtually at any point without a huge loss in finances and that the next person would just off the you know, cab rank would likely do almost exactly the same role, the same say the same thing, same ideology. So in effect, his downfall in you know, effectively, tacitly accepting the cheating. Well, he was in a win-now situation, or his job was in jeopardy. So had he overtly told the players to stop cheating, and that had caused a rift between the players and him, is that the players had security of contract and were a fantastic team who had been built by the front office, and the front office, effectively the easiest person, if there was an issue to replace, would be the manager. 
And so if that cheating, let's say, cost them one or two games, so maybe cost them home advantage in the playoffs, that could have a, a, an immeasurable effect on their chances of winning in the postseason. So effectively, by stopping, had he stopped the cheating, he could have done himself out of a job. <laughs> Which then I think leads on to really, with the front office, the issue of corporate culture. So effectively, they had weakened the political power and the independence of the manager. So if we're in a situation where the success that AJ Hinch had 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 not left, led to any form of job safety or job security for him. You know, it, it's analogous to the situation with zero-hour contracts and in the outside corporate world that we have at the moment. I mean, it's notable that the way how the Houston Astros front office has been described has been sort of, you know, very much tech bro-ish. And having that kind of combination of focus on analytics and you know algorithms and you know computer technology and also with an, an overwhelming sense of entitlement, a sense of arrogance. For example, with the assistant general manager Brandon Taubman, who'd been effectively hired out of the you know, private sector who'd risen quite rapidly up the front office to a particularly senior role, and after having beaten the New York Yankees in the playoffs, you know, shouting very loudly at three female reporters, that he was so delighted over and over again at having signed Roberto Osuna. Now, the reason they'd been able to sign him and trade for him was that he'd been arrested for domestic violence, so they got him at a cheap rate. Because they just didn't care that he was effectively a PR liability. And that the Astros organisation had, you know, at first denied the um, reporters you know, characterizations of what he had said. You know, which was uniquely, you know, shameful. And eventually, yes, they did get round to firing him, but it, you know, but taken in totality, it shows an organisation that had that had weak communication that was simply entirely focused on winning at all costs and didn't have any real appreciation for the rules and for and for just basic respect, which I think then leads into the wider question of really, you know taking in both cricket and baseball at this instance, well, well, who's to blame? And I think with cricket and with specifically the Australians, there was an element of the, the media and the fans being to blame. You know, they were happy to not ask questions as long as the winning had continued. For example, take the 2005 Cricket World Cup final that was held in Australia and New Zealand. The final took place in Australia. And New Zealand got to the final, but had played all of their previous games in New Zealand. And they were a wonderful team. They weren't... New Zealand have always been kind of the underdogs. I suppose the, I suppose the closest equivalency would be something like the Minnesota Twins of the late 90s. Always there or thereabouts, never quite winning the whole thing, but always you know doing better than they should do. But 
as a result of teamwork, well, or good organisation, and just generally being good people. And what happened was is that Australia, uh, New Zealand got a, a huge amount of the plaudits for the, you know, they played a wonderful brand of cricket, and, it, and in a really refreshing way. They were very friendly. They were just mates enjoying the game together. Whereby the Australians were under far more pressure. The previous time they'd hosted the Cricket World Cup had been in 1992, and they hadn't got to the final. And there was this desire they needed to win, and they wanted to win on Australian soil, because the board needed the money that they would get from, and the you know, the publicity and the public interest in winning, and the players were under that, were then, you know, I suppose... Exposed that, and they had their own desire to win at home, as any nation that hosting a tournament has that kind of pressure on them. So when it gets to the final, the, the Australian cricketers, specifically, yeah, especially Brad Haddon, but it, a lot of them all got involved, were absolutely viciously sledging the New Zealand players long after the point at which Australia were going to win that final, and effectively they were just taking the piss out of them. For being good sportsmen, and it was almost like, "Ha! Look at you! You're you know you played all this love you know friendly, lovey dovey, good cricket, and we're annihilating you." And it it was an example of really tos- toxic masculinity. But the concept was is that no one in the media, and from what I could tell, really, the fans were that bothered because for them it was more along the lines of you know white line fever. It was the idealised version of an Australian cricket team. They were tough. They were excellent. They won. They, you know, once they got ahead, they put their yeah, foot on the throat of the opposition and never let up. So, no one's sitting there in this podcast saying that cricket needs to be, or top-level sport needs to be fully sanitised. But what had come from, you know, tough and fair and within the rules or even this just the spirit of cricket and spirit of the rules in general what i suppose people were considered at the time was just a idealized team just that won and had done what they needed to do in practice was a testosterone soaked nightmare and that that cultural acceptance from the media from the fans of no formal criticism at all just enjoying the moment of having beaten their nearest you know rivals in terms of geography in the final in australia was that that was where the road towards sandpaper gate two or three years later that was where it began once you didn't ask those questions and to a lesser extent in baseball there is i mean the the media were enthralled to the narrative of this front office genius. You know, it, there was the age-old last-to-first, you know, kind of slow-burn rise. It, but it was also achingly modern in the, the intelligence in terms of the drafting, in terms of, you know, effectively using tanking. You know, there was a famous front off um, SI Sports Illustrated front cover, you know, two or three years earlier that said, you're 2017, you know, World Series champions, yeah, that effectively had predicted the future, and I'm not blaming Ben Wright. It was you know I read that article, but 
it was too easy to jump onto that and really not to ask the question of why managers have become weakened and how they'd lost an element of independence and why corporate culture you know from you know in terms of you know technology companies in terms of had allowed to infiltrate the sport so quickly and with so little questioning which to me really leads to the stewards of the sport and the blame that they need to take for effectively being too corporatized, being too risk averse. So effectively, part of the reason this cheating has happened, you know, with regards to the sign stealing, has been the change in baseball in the last mm, sort of eight, nine, ten years whereby strikeouts have gone absolutely through the roof, where the amount of base hits, the amount of balls in play, and the pace of play in general has slowed, to the point now where the sport is very much... It's far more mathematical, and it's far more... And it's far more efficient, and that has its benefits in terms of being able to build teams and to and to improve player development to improve scouting and yet the game itself is far less watchable in many ways there's far less defensive plays because now you've got defensive shifting to literally within millimeters because of the amount of data that's in the sport you're getting less stolen bases and while in that might look great on the algorithm and that may well be the most efficient way of playing baseball that is not from an aesthetic point from a sporting point it's making the game far less watchable in many ways the the games go on longer with less action the bits that fans really love base running you know stolen bases great defensive plays you know balls in play you know base runners whereby now you're just getting walks home runs and strikeouts so for long periods of time, the ball isn't even really in play. And so you can understand, and this is something that I've noticed from all the coverage that hasn't really been covered in any detail. Actually, what the sign stealing was trying to do was, in some ways, trying to get bat on ball. Trying to get the ball in play. So it may be more tending towards home runs, but it's at least if you know that there's a curveball, you've got more chance, or a slider, you've got more chance of being able to get the bat and ball and get it into play so that you're getting the fielder, so you're getting people on base. Because in some way, shape or form, a lot of these forms of cheating, you know, which is different from, let's say, you know, throwing a game, or you know, accepting money or bribes or spot-fixing, this is far more to do with an issue with the game itself and the way how players and managers and coaches have jimmy the rules to try and create that a form of redress. And because, the, and this is where the failing of the commissioner and of the rules it is really twofold. You have the failure to of properly policed it so that actually you didn't have people going into these rooms and using it to you know, you know to steal signs, which is 
it was an inevitable. If you don't have anyone watching the room, you can't be massively surprised when that happens. And that they sh- that should have been foreseeable. But the wider failure is far more along the lines of not dealing with the pace of play, not dealing with the issue of getting, you know, of getting batted balls into play. So, so when I say to corporatize and risk averse, there's constantly this sense of needing more data and more committees to investigate. When really, if you're going to be the steward of baseball, you need to you know, make definite decisions even if they're not guaranteed. So my example would be, how much data did the American League have about the implementation of the DH 50-plus years ago? I don't imagine it was a huge amount of data. What they realised was is that there was a lack of offence and adding the designated hitter as opposed to having a pitcher, pitch, sorry, bat, would be just an easy way of getting more offence and making there a difference between the American League and the National League, and it's broadly worked. So in other words, what you need is, even if it is something such as you know, limiting the amount of defensive shifts, you know, making changes that actually allow there to be more balls put into play, which is, yes, it's not going to be as efficient, but it's going to be far more watchable. And if you can then ally that to you know, cutting down on the amount of dead time and making the game more rounded and more aesthetic than just simply being the bottom line which is what it currently is in its sort of corporate guise with the rise of the activist front office and it's something that cricket needs to really understand with things such as you know sandpaper gate is that there is a problem with if you have the cooker bubble if it doesn't do enough if it goes dead after 30 40 50 overs then actually that's a problem with the ball, and the teams will start will do you know, sandpapering. They will you know, use mints if they you know if there is no redress through the actual stewards themselves doing something to improve the quality and the way how the balls are used in that regards. Really, to to end this podcast to conclude, I'm really going to go with sort of two options. Right? two ideas you've got the tragedy at the heart of a lot of cheating scandals is did they need to do it you know with you know Alex Cora is that the teams that he was bench coach and the teams that he managed were both brilliant teams that both won a hundred games that both did brilliantly well in the playoffs and yes I'm sure you know the sign stealing had a positive impact but I can't imagine it being that positive in that we know that there was huge amounts of it cheating happening across the sport it wasn't just the Red Sox the Astros and to and the New York Yankees I'm sure there were lots of other teams that were doing very similar things really it leads on to the next question of well, why do we punish, only punish the most successful teams? And it's multifaceted, but in general, what you're dealing with is that successful teams, it when they cheat, 
impacts the most high-profile games, watched by the, the most viewers. And there's the tacit acceptance that the individual team and the individual that did it benefited the most from it. For example, if the last place team were to do it, either they were incompetent in their use of cheating, or they were so terrible that it made no difference, which is you know, punishment enough in, it, in of itself. And really, by drawing a line and only punishing the, the teams at the absolute top, it, in a way, distracts from the institutional failings that created the need to cheat and, allow, and the failings of enforcement that allowed it to proliferate and flourish in the first place. And this is more you know, applicable to baseball, which is far more centralised and less prone to sort of localised issues, whereby with some of the, the spot-fixing scandals with Pakistan and the Hansi Konya match-fixing and throwing in the 90s was to do with you know, poor national control and economic inequality that meant that the English players were earning X amount of more money than the Pakistani players or X more money than the South African players, which therefore means that they are more susceptible to the inducement of a bookmaker saying, here's 5, 10, 15 grand. And really going back to Alex Cora was that... Was it a one-off aberration? I mean, it's it's gone from you know because we haven't seen the report on the Red Sox yet, and to you know what baseball have to say on it, we can't, I can't really say definitively. But for me, it's the idea was that he was so highly regarded. You know, did he really need to take such a drastic measure? You know. He was always going to become a major league manager. He was more than likely to be a successful manager had he never touched, you know, the monitor. Had he never even thought of sign stealing. Yes, I'm sure it was very much that lots of other teams were doing similar things, but it gets the feeling that <clears throat> he his use of it was the most overt, especially with the Astros more than the, the Red Sox. So what good can come from this? We need better institutional control and of law enforcement and you know the rules you know regarding technology and that's the easy bit. You know, in other words, baseball can just you know simply you know lock the replay room and not allow the players anywhere near it. You can ban video players looking at video from the start of the game to the end of the game. You know, much in the same way that cricket, you know, has improved its corruption detection and more importantly education so that, yes, they understand that players will you know, be given inducements, but it's far more along the lines of actually putting players in a position to know what the rules are and know how to stop it and to, to report it. And I'd have to say with Sam Papergate and the Australians... I feel there's been a sea change in attitude, you know, with the Big Bash T20 League, with the attempt to appeal to a wider audience, and with the elements of commercialism that are intrinsic to that, it's led to a crackdown on things like casual sexism, for example, the Chris Gale scandal a few years ago, and how he was never then picked up by another 
the Big Bash team ever again, and how to and how to the crackdown on you know casual on field homophobia because of the need for you know to try and appeal to you know, members of the LGBT commu- community and having you know Pride nights and how you can't have that if you have players. You know, shouting homophobic abuse at each other. So there has been an improvement, and sometimes it shows you that elements of commercialism aren't always terrible impacts, have a terrible impact on sports. A lot of the time it can be, you know, there can be positives towards it, because you're trying to move away from, you know, toxic masculinity to a cricket where everyone is able to watch and able to enjoy it and love it in the same way that I do. And you've had the situation where the team is now broadly successful and far more popular with the rest of the world because they're not so outlandish. And you've had a redemption narrative for you know Smith and Warner and to an extent Cameron Bancroft. And there's, a, I suppose, a question mark of what happens when the Australian team, cricket team, start to struggle. Will that lead back to the headbutting of the rules and the line returning and of overtly aggressive behaviour being considered intrinsic to Australian cricket success? We don't know that yet. But I would argue that the chances of you know, having such overt cheating and over aggression aren't as likely to be inbuilt into the next generation of Australian cricketers who are growing up having played big brash cricket and the and the wider audience that that is seeing the sport as opposed to a far more parochial, far more male, far more traditional audience that may have watched it a generation or two previously. And as for baseball, you need the sense of a proactive stewardship of the game from the commissioner in making changes and reforms to the sport to make it far more appealing as a as a sporting and as an aesthetic, aesthetic game. And that needs to be linked, interlinked with the need to limit the influence of the corporatized activist front office. We need to remember that for all of the rationales of the numbers and of the analytics, it's profoundly in favour of inequality. It's Ivy League graduates stuffed for you know within front offices, and it's primarily benefiting the ownership over the players, billionaires over millionaires. And that that battle, which will happen when the you know, collective bargaining agreement expires, and that really, although we now have a far more knowledge of baseball, is that that hasn't led to a on-field product that is particularly as interesting as the sport was in the 80s and the 70s and the 60s, whereby, yes, if there were periods of offensive decline or pitching dominance there was people within the commissioner and the commissioner's office who were willing to make the the changes proactively lower the mound add in the dh which would allow the sport to become centered again (laughs) and really if we take australia they wanted to forgive and have 
Smith and Warner specifically redeemed due to their you know their clear brilliance as players and as symbols of Australia. You know, with David Warner from his hard scrabble upbringing and of his of having risen to the top in such a an exciting way. You know, having literally having to win a cricket competition so that he could get a new bat. And what that means as you know, an example of Australian meritocracy, whereby you don't have to come from a rich area, that you can come from the poor part of town and still you know, rise to the top echelons of being you know, one of the best cricketers on the world. And how, you know, with Steve Smith, that you know, his you know, mum is English, his dad is Australian, and how that really feeds into, you know, Australia's history of having, you know, mass migration. Um, you know, just differing stories and how they all become Australian. They all, you know, worship the baggy green. And that how Australia's, you know, culture allowed them to, you know, forgive and forget and to understand that, yes, they'd made a you know, huge mistake but that there were failures, you know, from the media, from the fans, from the cricket board, from the coaching, and to the players themselves, and that there was a clear need for, you know, changes to be made so that these, you know, scandals would never happen again. And really, for baseball, they needed to engage in this journey in the sense that one of the things that links all the people that have been caught up in this scandal and have been punished in terms of Carlos Beltran, Alex Cora, AJ Hinch, Jeff Luno, all of these people have made mistakes. But all of these people have a fundamental love of baseball. You know, yes, in Carlos Beltran's last season as a pro, when he was struggling, he may well have, you know, decided made a horrible mistake to get involved in this you know, stealing of signs to try and you know, get him his World Series ring, to get him just that last run through so that he could end his baseball career as a player in a positive way. That's, it's bad, but it's understandable, you know, to err is to be human. Alex Cora has, no, has devoted his life to baseball. You know, he has, was a decent player. You know, has shown you know great ability as a manager. Has been a, a you know highly well regarded broadcaster. With AJ Hinch, has done you know has really fundamentally changed you know what a manager could be in terms of their background, in terms of the skills, in terms of the way how they you know deal with players, the way how they you know managers have now far more in tune with the next generation, younger generation of players than of the previous generations where these people were quite hard and at times, you know, uncaring to an extent. And, you know, for all of the mistakes that have happened, you know, with the Astros in terms of their corporate culture, you know, damaging the, the undoubted success that the Astros had had, Luno had still done some fantastically interesting things in turning the Astros from you know, afterthoughts into a, you know, wonderfully talented, successful baseball team that was able to take, you know, the likes of Garrett Cole and Justin Verlander and give these pitchers a second life. 
and how the Astros winning the World Series, the benefits that it brought to the Houston area after the the effects of that terrible hurricane. So my final question is this. Who in baseball is going to do the same for Cora, Beltran, Hinch and Leno? Who in baseball in terms of you know, teams, in terms of the media, in terms of the fans and you know, the commissioner is going to make the effort to, you know, forgive and redeem these people who for all of their failures still have added so much positive to baseball history and don't deserve to be blackballed they deserve to be punished but there should be a route back into the game thank you for listening